0: This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. So I'm going to trust that something I hear inside is good. I'm going to trust that it's good. And then I'm going to go with that and I'm going to take that idea that I think is good and I'm going to try to expand it and I'm going to try to make it better and make it more expressive and grow that grow that idea. And that to me is creativity is doing it that way rather than looking around and seeing what's popular and trying to emulate something that you think is cool or that you think people are going to like.
1: I'm your host, Casey Feiney, and this is Creative Conversation, a fast company podcast. When I found out HBO was doing a documentary on Kenny G, I was genuinely excited for two reasons. One, I was interested in learning more about this very unlikely and very polarizing superstar, and two, because I knew I'd be able to talk to him about it all. What I love about this doc, which is called Listening to Kenny G, is that it really dives into the sometimes valid, sometimes unjust criticisms Kenny has faced over his career. But even if you're not a fan of his style of music, you can't say the guy isn't an incredibly skilled musician. Plus, with a 40-year career and more than 75 million records sold, he has to be doing something right. In our conversation, Kenny explains how trusting his ideas and a relentless pursuit of perfection is what fuels his creativity and his success. All right, Kenny G. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's
0: my pleasure from one coast to the other, actually. Isn't that cool? <laughs> no.
1: Oh, the age of technology. I'm
0: <laughs> as far west as you can get, and you're as, almost as far east as you can get. Right? I
1: know. But yeah, I, I want to start. I always love when I talk to my guests to kind of take it back from the beginning and, and ask what was your earliest and most significant
0: connection
1: to music?
0: Probably the first record that I heard was a Tower of Power record. Good choice. And I was. <laughs> 16 maybe just going to high school i didn't really pay much attention to music until then it was a totally different time period i mean we're talking in the 70s and my parents were not real music i don't know if they were not even music lovers but we never had music in the house there was never Hmm. like today it seems so natural you come into a home and families have music on the background or sometimes they just actually pay attention and listen of course there was not one time I remember any music in my household, ever.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. And so <laughs> I think when I went to high school, somebody introduced me to a record. <laughs> so I said, whoa. And I put the record on and I put the little, whatever you put the needle on it. Uh-huh. And it was this Tower Power record that had all this cool sax stuff going on. I went, whoa, really? Okay. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what, what they're it, doing? <laughs> that's what it's supposed to kind of sound like. And then when I was uh, later on in high school, somebody played me a Grover Washington Jr. record. I said, okay, wait, that's a saxophone? My saxophone doesn't sound anything like that. I am going to try to sound like that. Of course, I ended up just sounding like me, but, but I was inspired. So that was, that was the point.
1: Right. And to that question, I know, because in in the HBO, HBO documentary, which is fantastic, by the way, it's just so compelling, but <laughs> you do mention that Grover Washington Jr., I mean, that just listening to that record has such an impact on you, and you said you were determined to become the white Grover Washington Jr., so <laughs> yeah. how did you find your own sound within that framework of inspiration?
0: You know, it, it it really was just always there. I mean, as much as I tried to emulate Grover, and then later on, you know, I'd hear great players like, you know, Cannonball Adderley and John Coltrane and all these jazz greats trying to get that sound and Stan gets It's like, you know, I can only sound like me. So it just kind of happened. And I think it's really good for young artists of any sort to try to emulate somebody that you really like. And then hopefully along the way, you find your own sound. And that happened for me.
1: Mm. And so how would you describe your sound? Because I think everyone has an opinion of your sound so, oh, yeah.
0: as the man who creates
1: the sound. just
0: watch the movie you can see there's lots of opinions uh, oh gosh i don't know i mean honestly um first time i ever played my soprano in high school i remember playing it for the guys and in, in just my high school friends and they go that doesn't sound like a soprano i go i know Dude, come on um i don't know i just um I don't know. I hear it. I hear the tone just being a certain way that it is. When you hear my, me play, that's the tone that I, that I have. Right. And I don't really know how to describe it other than like, let's say somebody's asking me like, "What is your, what's your sound like? What what do you do? I said, here, just listen to this. I I can't even say it. Just listen. Mm. And then you tell me. That is true. Cause it's kind of
1: more of a feeling in a way. I mean, that's how I always think about your music is like, not necessarily, you know it when you hear it, but it's more so for me, it's just kind of like the feeling that it that it gives you like yeah. that sort of like washes over you everything's just kind of like calm and easy and nice <laughs> and so sort of a feeling then like a sound that i that even i can really describe so yeah no that's fair that is totally fair <laughs> so when you signed with Airstar records i mean the first few projects you know didn't quite break through but when you released songbird in 1986 i mean that was really the flashpoint to your success so when you look back at your career what would you say changed? Like, why was Songbird able to break through in a way that previous work didn't?
0: Well, it, it, as you as you said, you've seen the documentary. So in there, I tell a long story about how I played Songbird on the Johnny Carson show. And that was a huge point for me to do because people around the country could hear this song and a certain st- it was a certain style that kind of hadn't been done before. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that just, all the things lined up, uh, in 1985 or 86, the first synthesizer came into existence. Now, a synthesizer for those that aren't musicians is basically those keyboards that you see that aren't pianos that look like they're just only the keyboard part. And they got all these red lights and buttons and knobs that you turn and they create sound. So they can sound like a piano. Maybe they can sound like a, an organ. They can sound like a trumpet and you, you create sounds. and so. In 1985, I got one of those synthesizers, and part of the technology was that if you played something, it would memorize it and play it back for you, and you could fix and change things. So, I didn't have to be a great piano player. So, I created a music track that I thought sounded good. Then I played my sax on it with a melody that I liked, and that's how Songbird came into existence. And I think people, you know, I don't think it had been done before like that, and so there was a new sound, a new song, a new me, and people just liked it thank goodness they liked it because they could have easily went no we don't really like that new thing but they liked it so thank you
1: right and especially i mean because you yeah you played it on johnny carson but you weren't supposed to play it on johnny carson <laughs> it's like really and i think and it, it, as watching that i was like i really i was like good for him like good because you you had such conviction in you know wanting to get this song out there and knowing that it would connect with people but yeah, you weren't definitely weren't supposed to play
0: <laughs> Songbird on Johnny Carson. So, I honestly didn't know that it was going to connect with people I didn't know. But mm. I, what I did know was I had been performing that song, let's say for the last year at my little shows and we were playing for 100 people, 50 people, whatever. And I would play Songbird and people would really like that song. And so, I thought that people would enjoy it on a national level, but you never know for sure. Right. But yeah, it definitely took a lot of conviction but Honestly, at that point, I had had zero to lose. I had not much of a career. And so I'm thinking, you know, this is my big shot on television. I'm going to play the song I want. And if nothing good happens, well, at least I know I went out trying my best. And that's
1: the thing I was going to ask me, like, what lesson is there? Because you say you weren't a big mu- musician, but I mean, it's still a huge risk because Johnny Carson, that's not, that's not a small show. No. And so it could have easily been like, you know, blacklisted in like the music community. So I guess looking back what lesson is there in, in taking a big swing like that?
0: Well, I think first of all, you have to, you have to get your skill level up to a certain point. Very true. It's not, it's, you don't, you don't want it all based on luck. You don't want to like go on a show and go, well. I'm pretty good at this. And I hope tonight's the big night that I do really well. No, you want to know that you are really great at what you're about to perform. And then do what you do. Do the thing that makes you sing, you know, not literally, but figuratively, figuratively. <laughs> and then you know that you probably have a good chance of it being successful. And even if people don't really like it, you know that you did a great performance of something that meant a lot to you and you can walk away feeling confident and that confidence can then lead to maybe another break somewhere along the line if that's turned if it doesn't turn out to be that break that night right right
1: and I know a lot of people associate your music with you know elevator music or waiting room music (laughs) and just you know department store music just that pleasant background sort of soundtrack and so I mean how does that make you think about your artistry because you clearly are such a skilled musician and you seem very unbothered by, <laughs> by people's opinions, but it's like, I mean, how does that make you think about your artistry, this, this this thing that you pour so much love into that a lot of people just think is like filler, like background noise? Well,
0: yeah, and I, I appreciate the way you worded that, but but I, I get it. You know, it's for me, it's always been about what do I, um, what's the word, what's the word, what do I give from me. What I get from me is my, my records, my CD, my recordings, my performances. So that's what I deliver. What happens after that is entirely up to the individual, and I can't control that. So if I play a beautiful song that for me, every nuance of it was something that you should pay close attention to because it's very complicated, the way I glistened from the F sharp to the E flat, and all these things that you could say, whoa, that technique was pretty awesome. Okay, so I'm thinking about that, but you might listen to it and go, whoa, I'm going to put that on in the background for tonight's dinner with my girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) fine. You're
1: still listening.
0: (laughs) I know what went into it. So that's that's where I can feel good about what I'm doing because I know what went into it. After that, it's really up to, like I said, the individual to do what they want with the music. And, you know, the more people play it, it just allows me to have more, and I I don't mean success from a monetary standpoint, but success to, oh, well, People know me, they know my music, means maybe I'll have more gigs in the future, which means I can keep doing what I'm doing, which I
1: love. Right, absolutely. And so when you sit down to create a Kenny G original, what is your process? Like, <laughs> What is the method behind really the soundtrack to so many of our lives. If you grew up, in, I was actually born in 86 and my parents did play a lot oh. of Kenny G. Involved. Sorry about that. So, No, now listen, I was a very calm child. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So you what, go. what is your process for, for, creating, uh, for creating your music and has that evolved over the years? Because you've been at this for
0: quite some time. Yeah, let's see. It's probably been over 40 years I've been doing this. So wow. great. I mean, I'm still... So out here doing it, which is awesome. <laughs> um, you know, I wish I knew the process because then I would just bottle it and do it every time. And then it would be easy. <laughs> so the process could look like this. It could be I'm in my car and I hum a melody that I think will trigger something. So I put it on my phone. It could be I'm sitting at a piano, noodling around with notes. I'm not a great piano player. And I come up with some sort of a, an arpeggio or some chord progression that I think, Ooh, I just like it for some reason. It could be in my studio playing my saxophone and I play a melody. Oh, I like the way those notes okay, I'm going to write those notes down. That could turn into something. And then I just sometimes refer to those things and see, hey, was there an idea there? Sometimes it's me and a piano player or a keyboard player getting together and I said, you know, let's just play and I'm and something gets triggered every now and then. Like for example, on my new album called New Standards, which is out. The first song is called Emmeline. And that was triggered by a really good young jazz uh, piano player named Sam Hirsch. Really good player, mm-hmm. and he played like a one chord. I went, Sam, okay, that chord right there. Just play that again, and then I played these notes. I went, okay, that's the start of an amazing song. And then we started working from there.
1: Hmm. So that's. So I find that really interesting. So I mean, do you do you feel like the key to making that work is just being is knowing when it hits, because I think sometimes it's, it's easy for people to kind of get a flash of inspiration, but the, the, they don't write it down, or they just think they don't really think about it as anything. It sounds like you kind of get it and really zero in on it. So yeah, is that is that really the key to it? Just to recognize it and then zero in on it? Or like what like I just, I'm really trying to unpack yeah. the magic that is Kenny G.
0: <laughs> it could be that it could be. I mean, I, I do know that on my computer, I've got a file of probably 50 great ideas that we didn't take to the next level that sometimes I refer to and go, why haven't I worked on that song? That's <laughs> a, awesome. And then uh, I, I I forget about it and go make, make make a sandwich or something. And I've forgotten,
1: Oh, but God. it's in
0: there. <laughs> um you know it's timing too it's like mm. there's a certain time period where i really feel like i want to be creative like right now i don't have that going on right now because i just finished an album yeah so i don't feel creative although the other day i was playing something and i thought you know this will be a beautiful lullaby mm. and i and i definitely recorded it and just the sax part remember and i can remember it right now on my head because i already know this is going to be an amazing little lullaby and now I'm thinking, maybe my next record should be a lullaby album. Wouldn't that be cool? I'm shocked you haven't done it already. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure people use some of my songs as lullabies. Maybe even you for you when you were born in 86. Uh,
1: yeah. No, definitely. But to have <laughs> the official stamp of like, this is a Kenny G lullaby. then Yeah, I think. Uh... We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, Kenny explains why it took six years to record his latest album.
0: This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com.
1: Speaking of New Standards, which, you know, as you mentioned, is your, is your new album, I mean, you've had a pretty consistent cadence with releasing your albums, of which I think there's like 17 total. But New Standards marks your first album in six years. So how do you explain that gap in your resume?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Well, after the one in 2015, okay, and I go through at least, I think, at least a year of, okay, I don't have to think about creating new songs. Then I have to think about what do I want to do next. And then that takes a while to kind of figure out a concept. That could take a year. Could just take a year of me just contemplating, listening to music, um, just kind of letting my life go and just thinking, okay, I've done this before. It's going to hit me. At some point, I'm going to get inspired. And so I wait for that. And then maybe that took, instead of a year, maybe that took two years this time. I don't know what happened. (laughs) And then I I was uh, listening to an old Stan Getz record called Getz for Lovers. It's one of my favorites. And I thought, you know, I really love the way that certain parts of that record, this when they get into this romantic, sophisticated, Mm -hmm. traditional jazz core, complicated chords, but the melodies are something that just, it it soothes you, even though it's got some complexity behind it. I said, I'm going to do that. Uh, Should I record the old standards, you know? And I go, no, I don't want to do that. They've been recorded too many times. I'm going to write new ones. And that's kind of how the concept started. So then I got, to now I have to actually do it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: it just took a few years for me to figure out what I wanted to do and then a few years to do it. Fair enough fair enough yeah and not easy this is not easy stuff i
1: i i i know it's not i'm just saying six years is a long time you've you've deprived people of kenny g music for six years but i get it i get
0: it (laughs) i'm i'm telling you the melodies to create those melodies so that they for me they're there's something substantial that's not yeah i mean honestly i hear lots of records that come out from my contemporaries i'll just say that word And they seem to put out records, wow, like once every six months. I go, how do you do that? (laughs) Once every six months? Are you kidding me? Oh, my gosh. And then I go, oh, it was okay. Yeah, yeah, good. It was good. But where is the, like, I want it to be, I want every song to be a gem. Mm -hmm. I want every melody to be something that's so uh, heartfelt and impactful. And then, okay, so once you create the song, then it's like, okay, how are you going to play this song? You play the melody, then there's going to be an improvisation section. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm going to just start riffing? Or does it mean I'm going to actually try to create a whole new part to the song that makes it grow but still gives it some complexity? So it can't just be the same thing over and over. It's very tough. Yeah. I'm not saying it's so tough I can't do it, obviously, because I do it. But sometimes it just takes more time. <laughs> it just takes more time. There you go. <laughs> And one thing that I
1: really appreciated about the documentary is that it gave us a glimpse in, of your of how you created the studio, and I found it interesting. I like your use of editing software because I think yeah. when most people assume, myself included, that you know jazz music or you know jazz related music is kind of like recorded as a live take. You know, like if you if you yeah. if you mess up, like start it over. We need like we need to do this like once through, but that's not your approach. No, so I, like you because we see you like. I still like changing like a note like just editing that like just one fraction of it and just like kind of stitching it together. And so why that approach? Like why not just do like a live take, or, like one take of 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 a song?
0: Yeah. Uh actually you just answered the question from before. That's how you make a record every 6 months. You do it yeah. that way. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, it's just say, hey, hey, guys, let's run it through a couple times. Boom, we're done. Right. Oh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> but you just zero in on the details and get everything right. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, I'm just wired in a certain way. And I'm not presumptuous in, in any way by comparing myself to Michelangelo. But I can guarantee you, he didn't go up there and paint that Sistine Chapel in one take. Yeah, no. I'm sure he erased, all. washed off, did it again, erased, washed off. It took him, what, five years to do that? There's a reason it took five years, and there's a reason that thing stands today as an unbelievable masterpiece, Hmm. because I believe that's what it takes to create something that's a masterpiece, not just, that was really good. Okay, I can do really good. Come to my concerts. I don't get to change the notes there. Sure. Come come to my concert, watch me play, and you'll leave and you'll go, boy, that was really good. You might say it was amazing. You might say it was good. Whatever you're going to say. Is it going to be a masterpiece that will live forever? I mean maybe two or three concerts a year are that way and the rest are almost there maybe one or two are not quite close enough but you know that's <laughs> that's just the art of being a human being but for it to be a masterpiece and I say that not to pat myself on the back to last forever then yeah I if I hear that note that d and I wish that I would have held that vibrato just a little bit longer I'm going to redo it with the vibrato a little bit longer And I'm going to capture all the nuance that was in that take that had all that magic. But I'm also going to add that vibrato that takes it from me to that next level without losing anything and any of the magic of what was in there organically.
1: Mm, That's totally fair.
0: (laughs) That is the advantage of our modern technology. Like this interview we're doing. I'm sure that um, you've got guys that are going to put this together and edit it. And maybe one of the answers might be too long and Yep. It gets cut short, but you'd never know it. This is true. And that's that's what we get. That's the great thing. <laughs> right.
1: And so, no, I I agree. and That's why I found it really <laughs> interesting because, yeah, it was just, it was, I guess, I like I said, I just assumed that, you know, it was just yeah. like you in a studio, one take, you know, if you, if you mess up, start from the top. But no, you really, you re, like technology plays such a big role in this, which I think is a good thing. I mean, the technology is there. Why not use
0: it? And, and also you saying that is, is probably the best compliment because if you're saying that, that you're, you're telling me that's what it sounds like. And that's what it should sound like. It should sound like one beautiful, magical, organic take. Yeah. And if it doesn't sound like that, I'm going to, I'm going to massage it so that it does somehow. And I I've had to start from the beginning. Sometimes I chop it up and I put this, put this beautiful track together and I go, you know what? Every note's perfect, but it doesn't sound like a performance. Let's do it again. Mm. And that's another reason it takes six years to do a record. Right. So when you think back at this
1: 40-plus-year career, what would you say has been your biggest creative challenge?
0: Hmm. Good question. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean...
1: There is no challenge for Kenny G. That's what you're no. saying.
0: <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was thinking the opposite. I was thinking everything's a challenge. Every single record I put out, every note I play, every song I record, it's all challenging. I don't think there's been a greater really? challenge. You know, I think maybe maybe the challenging things in my career are when you're on those live TV shows and you really only have, you know, and they give you like, well, we can only have, we can only have you play two minutes and 36 seconds and <laughs> <Right>. that's it. <laughs> Not a, not a second more. It's like, okay, how am I going to put what I want into this performance and get this message across in two mm. minutes and 36 seconds? So that's challenging. I and can. and the studios are usually ice cold. <laughs> so the saxophone is very cold, which dries out the reed, which means that it's really hard to play with that same nuance and sensitivity that I can play either in, in my own controlled environment or on a hot, you know, night out in Miami when we're playing the outside gig and it's nice and humid. And the reed just goes, I love you. It's a lot different than in New York on Good Morning America when it's, you know, 56 degrees in the studio and they're all smiling. And I'm thinking I'm holding an icicle in my hand and you want me to make beautiful music with this? Of course we do it, but it's not easy. That's challenging.
1: I used to work at Good Morning America, so I know. I, I do know. They keep it's it.
0: freezing. <laughs> I mean, understandably
1: so. There's so many lights and people in there. So, yeah, I imagine it get really hot. But I never thought about how that would affect a musician like yourself. Like, I didn't even think about
0: the read aspect of it. But yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Fair. See, these are the things I keep to myself, unless we're talking about it. Like, I would never say that on Good Morning America and say something like, oh, before I do this performance, I just want to tell everybody, you know, this is really tough. And of course, no, they're going to watch me and they're going to think, ah, he's just waking up in the morning and he's just playing his mellow. Look at, he's so calm and life is great. And, I'm, and inside I'm going, okay, look at this is really hard. Dang it, it's cold. Dang it, it's cold. La, 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 la. Oh, it's so cold. And that's what's going on. And I'm yelling at myself. Inside. Oh my God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's amazing and I think one thing that that again came through in the documentary is that you a huge part of your success or what that you that you attribute to to your success is just having the discipline of practice and just like really just that's something that you even wrote on your old high school wall and it's something that you know like you just I think you said you practice at least like three hours a day or something which is like yeah, crazy yeah. to think because you know you're Master of the sax, and th- right there—it's <laughs> always right here. Man, I'm
0: always—you know—I was—I was practicing just before. I was like, okay, three forty-five. I have till three forty-five. Let me get another ten minutes in here, real quick. And that's what I was working on. You know, just just doing my licks. So even
1: now at this point, because I can understand that, I think you know, it, it's definitely admirable because obviously, you know, you want to keep your skill sharp. But yeah, the people would say that you have mastered this instrument, and it seems like you're still trying to master it even further so well, i mean i guess like what do you get from having that like having that much practice and making that such a priority because i was I, like i said i was surprised to find that because it's just like it seems like you can just do this in your sleep but you're acting as if like you just started out playing the sex.
0: yeah it feels like that i i i i make the joke sometimes you know i've been practicing three hours a day it's been about 50 years and last week I started to see some results, you know, that's, what I, that's, what, that's the joke, but it's almost like, you know, ah, uh, I don't know how to explain it. You know, maybe ask Michael Jordan, why would he ever practice shooting? I mean, he knows how to play basketball. Why would he even practice? Why would Tiger Woods hit another golf ball on the driving range? Why would they, they got it down because there's these really small nuances that make it from good to great. Mm. And that small nuances are, are the three hours a day practicing
1: mm. right? for me,
0: you know? So I want to get to know my, uh, my instrument even more like, like, what am I working on right now? Right now I'm working on, uh, I, well, actually it was, um, five years ago. I remember the day I said, okay, I'm going to start working on my tonguing. I want my tonguing to be better. Tonguing means, mm. you know, when I'm playing a note, I can either play it la 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 or going ta, 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 ta. Mm-hmm. and I felt like my tonguing could be better. So that was five years ago. And, uh, I thought the other day I was like, okay, it's been five years, and I thought, I'm better. Hmm. I am better. Just thinking another five years, so I say I'm I'm still right. working on it. Still, <laughs> still something. My tonguing, my phrasing, uh, my breath control. I don't know. And then I like, I, like I might hear some sax player play a a, a a lick that I really like. Okay, how did he do that? Right. And then I say, okay, that's cool. And then I might take that and go, you know, I like half of it, and I'll make my own little exercise out of it and then i'll practice that exercise in 12 keys and that's six months right there
1: interesting i was going to ask i mean like how does someone as accomplished as you keep yourself challenged oh yeah
0: play oh <laughs> it's, en- it's endless it's endless you know the scales wow. and the notes and the intervals and when i like something i like to try to play it in different keys now if you're a guitar player and you want to play something in different keys you just move your fingers right and you just go move down Sax playing—it's a whole different thing. It's like saying, "I know how to speak this in French." Okay, say it in uh, German. Oh, wait—I can't just say it in French with my mouth like over here a little bit. No, right? No, it's a whole different thing. So every time you change a key, it's like learning something brand new that you never knew before, and you right. have to do that over and over so that when you're standing on stage and it's time to play, you can reach into your pocket—and I use the pocket loosely—and I pull out. Just the right uh, group of notes to play. Now, how do I know that? Because I played them thousands of times, and boom, mm. I've got it. And now I'm playing along, and I want to go. Oh, I want to have. I want to put this thing in there. Boom! I pull it out, pluck it out of my pocket, and it's ready to go because I played it thousands and thousands of times. That's how you get really great. I think is you just keep adding to that repertoire so that you can be even more creative. It's like like in your business. Let's just say that your language skills you know, the, 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 the English language. Let's say you're you're a 7 out of 10. Mm-hmm. if you were 10 out of 10, do you think you would be better at your at your job? You probably would be. Absolutely. Or it might open up more uh, creative things that you could say because you're going to use words in a different way. So you keep practicing. It's like learning a new word and go, ooh, I want to use that word next time in the next interview. That would be cool. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. I agree. I I completely agree. But I have not mastered my craft. I think you have. But I don't think. No, I haven't either.
0: I'm still... Still got lots of notes to learn. If you say so,
1: but I mean, <laughs> I love to, I love to close out the podcast by asking my all my guests the same question because I just, I love hearing their answers. How have you come to define creativity?
0: Wow, well, I don't even think I've ever even thought about it before. Hmm. I really don't think about that. But now I'm going to think about it right now while we're talking. And I'm going to define creativity. Now, this is just, my first thought on it, because I've never thought about it before. But I think it's it's trusting things that you feel inside. Let's say, okay, I'm a sax player, so I'm going to think about it in terms of music. So I'm going to trust that something I hear inside is good. I'm going to trust that it's good. And then I'm going to go with that. And I'm going to take that idea that I think is good. And I'm going to try to expand it. And I'm going to try to make it better and make it more expressive and grow that, grow that idea. And that to me is creativity is doing it that way rather than looking around and seeing what's popular and trying to emulate something that you think is cool or you think people are going to like. If it comes from within and you trust yourself and you grow it from there, I think that's creativity. I love that. Mm. I
1: love that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: I think you never thought about that before. Look at you. Never, (laughs) never. (laughs) Oh, my God. Kenny, thank you so much for this. This was such a pleasure. I'm going to make sure I let my parents know that I interviewed Kenny G today. They're going to appreciate that. (laughs) It's my pleasure. As always, thank you for listening to Creative Conversation. Make sure you rate, comment, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'll see you next week.